I would like to acknowledge that this podcast is being recorded on the traditional lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people and pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. We also acknowledge the traditional custodians at each of our delegate hubs and throughout the country, where many of our listeners will be based. This is a moment that requires leadership. China signing security pact and looking to establish a base. People think I don't like China. I love China. The Pacific region has listed climate change as its number one threat. And so, friends, AUKUS is born. With a failure to invest in renewables. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I just have two more words to say. Obama out. Welcome to this episode of the Australian Crisis Simulation Summit podcast series for 2022. My name is Liam Sinan. In this series, members of the ACSS will host distinguished academics and industry leaders in talks on various national security topics. Our team has selected these podcast topics as being crucial in providing insights and knowledge relevant to the ACSS Summit in December this year. Today, I'm joined by Sophie Saden, an expert in the field of terrorism studies. Sophie Saden's PhD research focuses on how non-state armed groups get international legitimacy. Specifically, she explores how some non-state armed groups have made the transition from being deemed terrorist organisations to being recognised as legitimate, political and diplomatic entities. Sophie's research interests include terrorism, political violence, radicalisation, counterterrorism, conflict and transnational crime. Sophie is currently a lecturer and academic advisor for the Military and Defence Studies program delivered at the Australian War College. The MDSP is a fully integrated course delivered by Australian and international academics, military personnel and Australian public servants to educate Australia's future military leaders. Prior to this role, Sophie worked as a co-investigator for the ANU Deakin University Joint Initiative Australian Intervention Support Hub, AGE, which aims to bridge the existing gap between countering violent extremism research and government and community intervention program development and implementation. She has also worked as a research assistant for the ANU's Department of International Relations, Transnational Environmental Crime Project and the Amnesties and Peace Agreement Project. Prior to joining the ANU, Sophie was employed as a paralegal in the ACT Office of the Director of Public Prosecutions. Sophie has a Master's in International Relations and a Master's in Transnational Crime Prevention, both from the University of Wollongong. She's delivered papers at several international conferences and has been involved in discussions on various panels and interviews for podcasts and radio programs. Sophie has also authored a book, chapter titled Criminality and Cost, The Human Toll of Transnational Environmental Crime published in the Lorraine Elliott and William Shalder Edited Handbook of Transnational Environmental Crime, published in 2016. Sophie, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start with the definition. What is your definition of terrorism and how has the academic debate unfolded? Okay, look, terrorism is a complex phenomenon um, and there is no universal consensus of what terrorism actually is. But I guess at its most basic level, uh, terrorism is a strategy, it's, it's a tool. Um, it's the use of violence or the threat of violence to um, achieve some kind of political or ideological end. Um, generally speaking, terrorism is a form of strategic coercion um, that aims to change policies by generating a fear in a target. So in its most basic form, it's a type of political violence. Um, I guess, you know, terrorists use violence as, me- as a method for communicating as well um, and also as a way of publicising their grievances. The aim I, of, I'd say, most terrorist organisations is to achieve some kind of radical change or a change um, in some kind of a system. So some things like, um, you know, change in government, change in policies or, or, or some laws. Uh, Al-Qaeda's attacks in the US on September 11 and 2001 
were very effective uh, in eliciting um, an immediate reaction from the US government and from the international community. You know, if we look at it, you know, it's 20 years later now and people um, all over the world are still experiencing the effects of the radical changes caused by reaction to these, these attacks. There's a number of different debates on, you know, what terror, terrorism is, who are the terrorists, what creates a terrorist, are only non-state actors terrorists and all that kind of stuff. So there's a number of debates, but I guess one of the, um, one of the ones I'd like to talk about today is it's, there's a debate in academic studies which is, you know, old terrorism versus new terrorism and that somehow the terrorism that we saw pre-9-11 uh, is very different in terms of motivation, in terms of, you know, um, goals and all that kind of stuff to what is deemed to be new terrorism. So old terrorism was, has been spoken about as being, you know, um, you know, limited attacks by, you know, organisations which were hierarchical in structure um, and that may have been motivated or led by social or political grievances, things like the need for self-determination. Whereas, you know, others argue that new terrorism is more characterised by indiscriminate attacks. Um, so things like suicide bombings or, you know, not knowing exactly when this arbitrary attack will take place. Those that subscribe to this view of sort of, you know, a new terrorism are those that also think that these attacks, you know, post 9-11 are largely driven by extremism. Okay, extremist thoughts, extremist behaviour, jihadi, religious stuff. Um, and that they're based, unlike old terrorism, um, they're based more on loosely uh, network structure. So there's no sort of hierarchical structure within each group, but it's kind of that jihadi, or how we understand jihadi networks to work, and that is that you don't need to have uh, a camp or a base in every single part of the world, but the ideology is enough, allegedly, to spur people on to commit acts of terror. So I guess, you know... Um, as far as the actual debate, there's the good side. I guess the positive is that you know um, there is still so much that needs that could be learned about terrorism, uh, and there's still a lot of debate around a whole bunch of things um, in this field. One of the most important things to keep in mind is that you know, as far as the old versus new terrorism stuff, terrorism's always existed. It's not a new thing. It's been around for thousands of years, and I think it's easier to digest that when you remember, or if you keep in mind that. It's a tool. It's a strategy that you use, and it's not a new strategy. It's a strategy that's been used for thousands of years. So I don't think, for me personally, there is that much of a difference between old and new. I think the only real difference between, I guess, maybe most attacks before 9-11 and those that we've sort of focused more on since 9-11 uh, has been in the means. So they've, you know, groups have got social media, for example. They've got so many more things um, available to them that allows them to perhaps have a wider audience. Wonderful. So I guess looking at terrorism as that strategy, as a means to an end, so to speak, how has the use of terrorism changed over the time? Has it remained somewhat consistent or has it changed as with its definition? I think the way that terrorism is enacted, the tools that are available to people who want to engage in, in terrorist acts have changed. They've multiplied. So there's more available to people who want to, to commit these acts than there was before. And that has been spurred on by globalisation and, you know, uh, social media. Um, look, as far as the definition of terrorism is concerned, um, or as far as how the definition of terrorism has evolved, I think that the 9-11 attacks and the rise of jihadi extremist groups like ISIS um, have seen increased scholarly discussion of terrorism. Um, as I've already highlighted, there's no consensus, consensus on what terrorism is, but I think that We've seen the definition of terrorism widen to include state actors. 
um, as perpetrators of terrorism and by some scholars as well that religion as being a key motivation or driver for for terrorism um, and religion as a means and an end uh, for terrorist uh, activity. There's some research that, or there is research that suggests that some terrorist organisations engage in organised crime, um, such as drug, drug trafficking or weapon smuggling, to fund their campaigns, or that um, organised crime syndicates include terrorist groups as part of their extensive criminal networks. However, I think the main difference between organised crime and terrorism is the goals. Organised crime groups are largely driven by the need for personal wealth, uh, the need for power. So the personal motivations. Whereas I think you know, terrorist groups are generally motivated by party, sorry, political um, and or ideological um, goals. With respect to state-sanctioned terrorism, I think part of the definitional problem is that terrorism has long been understood to be um, perpetrated by non-state actors against state actors. The Hobbesian notion, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but the Hobbesian notion of the social contract um, whereby the state or the ruling body maintains a monopoly on the use of violence um, in, ex- to, in order to protect a population um, in exchange for that population's submission to the rules and laws of that ruling um, body or polity. That idea still under, underpins a lot of uh, thinking about whether state-sanctioned violence is actually terrorist violence, uh, and that makes it really difficult to sort of say definitively one way or another. Um, I guess we've seen many examples over the years of governments using methods which could be defined as terrorist methods. You know, for example, we've seen drone attacks on weddings, um, use of excessive violence to quell civil protests and so forth. And we also know that states do fund terrorist organisations in other states and as part of proxy wars and so forth um, as a means for destabilising those states and also for causing ongoing psychological terror. Um, so that people within those states are always on edge, they're always anxious, um, and that further destabilises the government um, and delegitimises the government within those other states. As far as the types of terrorist violence and the lethality of it, I think state-sanctioned terrorism is by far the most dangerous and the most lethal because states have got more money and more power and more means to be able to do what they feel that they need to do. It seems to have become a very loaded term nowadays mm. where in regards to what is classified as a terrorist is very much a label assigned mm. by those with a legitimate use of force. Absolutely, yeah. And we've seen throughout, you know, throughout history as well, there's been you know, a number of examples where we've seen, I guess, non-state groups which have used political violence as a way of becoming governments of another state and that's something that I focus on in my research. But then those governments over time then turning the tables and becoming the ones that are enacting the terrorism. And we've seen that in a couple of countries around the world. So it's interesting to see how, how the cycle just keeps evolving. Um, and then I think for me, it, it just goes back to reinforcing that basic tenet of what terrorism is, and that is it's purely a tool, it is a tool that's at disposal, and you know it's one of many tools. Now looking at more from a non-state actor perspective, who are likely to become terrorists I guess looking at those individual and psychological factors that make those more susceptible to the process of radicalisation and then, in effect, action. That's a really interesting question. A really it's a loaded, loaded one with loaded that. Loaded question. And I think if I had a good answer for that, then I'd be a very rich person. Um, look, I think there's no single pathology that we're aware of that explains uh, all terrorists or all terrorist acts. Um, As I said earlier, terrorism is a complex phenomenon. Humans are complex creatures and the way that we interpret the world around us and the way that we engage the world around us is unique to us. 
So trying to sort of understand the complexities of each person's experiences in the world and trying to sort of generalise that to be applicable to larger groups, I think that's a very difficult thing to do. Um, And I don't know that there's actually a lot of value in, in doing that either. I think for me, I really believe that terrorism is a byproduct of social, political and economic problems. Um, what may lead you know, one person to join a terrorist group or, and or engage in terrorist violence is difficult to understand, but a person can also be motivated by the need for belonging, the need to belong to a group or to be part of a, um, a bigger campaign or a bigger issue. They can also be motivated by a sense of injustice, so both real injustice but also perceived injustice, the idea that you know the West is out to get them, for example, the, the government is out to destroy someone's fundamental way of life. Trauma can also impact um, or sort of reinforce particular facets of someone's belief system um, and also other mental health issues may also play a part in that. But that's not to say that terrorists have got mental health issues or that terrorists are psychopaths because one thing I know for sure I'm pretty confident of is no terrorist organisation wants a psychopath within their midst because psychopaths or sociopaths don't follow orders. And as a terrorist organisation, you want to make sure that things get done. It's like an organisation like no other, I guess. Exactly right, exactly right. There's a number of different layers to it. In terms of radicalisation or the so-called process of radicalisation, it's a contentious concept. Um, I think for a long time um, in in scholarly circles and in policy circles, we sort of got stuck on the notion that that there's there's a policy or there's a path to radicalisation. And I think that having sort of particularly post 9-11, having sort of focused on that for quite some time now, I think we've come to to see that radicalisation in and of itself is not a clear-cut thing. Look, before 9-11, we didn't even really talk about radicalisation and terrorism together. It was something that was used in, in different contexts and for different things. The idea of radicalisation has really come about particularly post 9-11, in discussions driven by debates on religious or extremist terrorism, for example, jihadi, Christian, right wing. The other thing as well with with radicalisation is that, important to keep this in mind, is that people can subscribe to extremist views on anything. Okay, you can believe whatever you want to believe. But I think there's a to me, I think there's a big difference between people subscribing to certain worldviews or positions about particular issues and taking that next step or crossing over that imaginary line to actually using violence as a way of forcing others to submit to that particular worldview or that particular uh, belief. So I think it's really important to remember that because while we may think that someone is radical in their views of, about something, that doesn't mean that they're a terrorist or they're likely to become a terrorist. That is far more, far more complicated, that process. In regards to the so-called process of radicalisation, what role does religion play a part of? Is it purely in creating this dynamic of a community and sense of belonging to others or is it something else? I think that the role of religion in terrorism is exaggerated. I really do. In saying this, though, I do agree that some people who are willing to engage in terrorist violence are motivated by ideas that their understanding of their religion, which for some is also really closely tied to their identity, um, has been corrupted somehow by others. Um, And these grievances are often based on racist, nationalist and conspiracy theories or ideas. Religious text usually is taken out of context um, and it's then used as a justification for violence, uh, for the need to set things right by exacting some kind of revenge. So I think, you know, this idea that, you know, um, religion somehow promotes 
terrorism or promotes, um, you know, um, committing horrific acts against others. I think I can't imagine any religion um, intentionally setting out to do that unless we're talking about, you know, some of the um, more extreme fringe groups and some of their beliefs. But in terms of the larger religions, I, I think that religion is used as a justification for trying to unite people to a cause. Um, this is what our religion believes. Uh, often it's corrupted, often it's it's twisted to, to fit another purpose, it's taken out of context. But in some parts of the world, I think religion is so closely tied to society and the system of governance in some places that it really forms a strong element of someone's identity. So any attack on their religion or anything to do with a religion says something about them. So I think that as far as religion being key driver for terrorism, I, I would disagree with that. I would say it, it plays a very small part, but I, I would say that it's not a significant part in the process to uh, terrorist behaviour. As we transition from terrorism to counterterrorism, how real is the threat of terrorism? Are certain countries more susceptible or certain groups? So I think I've sort of touched this on already, but it's a tool, it's a strategy. And as a tool and a strategy, it's always existed. Okay, we've got lots of documented uh, cases of terrorism or terrorist acts being used throughout history. Um, some people even argue that, um, for those of you that are familiar with biblical stories, the story of Samson. Samson, by some interpretations, um, could be deemed the first suicide bomber because he basically blows himself up in the name of religion, allegedly. Okay, so there are examples if we really want to get to that forensic detail of things, of terrorism as a strategy being used throughout history. So in that light, it's unlikely that terrorism will ever go away because it's a tool that's available and a strategy that's available to everyone, irrespective of education, resources, power, all that kind of stuff. It's a tool that anyone can can use if they feel it's going to achieve the ends that they need. In terms of, you know, how, you know, how real is the threat? Well, it's an existing threat. Um, there will be times, I think, um, based on a whole bunch of factors where we may see um, heightened risks that may be in response to uh, attacks that may take place. But I think that the best way or one of the, I want to say the best way, but one of the most effective ways of sort of reducing or mitigating some of the effects or the, the motivation to um, engage in terrorist acts is to address some of the underlying issues or some of the underlying problems that make people more susceptible to engage in these acts or to join terrorist organisations. Are certain countries more susceptible? Look, terrorism can happen anywhere and has happened everywhere. Um, I don't think that Australia is less likely to have an attack than, say, somewhere in the Middle East, though I think our um, counterterrorism measures and our security measures are probably uh, more advanced, so perhaps we are in a better position to, to stop something before it actually becomes a significant threat. But I think... Given that, that terrorism is not religiously motivated, okay, in and of itself, terrorism is a, as I said before, social, political, economic problem, okay, or a response to, to um, these kinds of issues. So if we, we're looking at states around the world or parts of the world where people do not have either access to a decent level of education, um, jobs, some kind of social system, but also a political system that allows them to freely express themselves or allows them to be able to debate or to um, advocate for things that, they, that their families and their communities actually need. 
places like that around the world are probably going to have populations or communities that are going to be more susceptible to people or groups coming in and offering them something that the governments haven't or are unable to offer them. So it's often a way out, but it's also a you know, system of protection. You know, There's, I think it's Hamas and Hezbollah, um, in addition to being a government in, in, in the areas that they're in, they also offer like a social security type system where they um, offer health benefits to the communities. There's a whole bunch of other stuff that go with you know who they are and what they're actually doing it's not just the fact that they're using or they've got terrorist violence at their disposal they are trying to uh, incorporate or trying to legitimize their power to their constituents by offering them all these other things and that's smart because it then reduces a chance of there being a backlash against them I think addressing social problems, addressing economic problems, addressing political problems will go a significant way in making people less inclined or to, you know, turn to terrorism, um, but also less likely to be, um, I don't want to use the word groomed, though, you know, grooming does happen in, in terrorism, to be groomed or to be enticed by these fringe groups, which they often are. I think, you know, if I can use an example, you know, if we look at, you've, you know, you're all probably familiar with the Arab Spring and, and that occurring. So the Arab Spring, what people don't realise, I think what a lot of people don't realise is the Arab Spring, as you may know, it sort of sparked off in Tunisia. There was the um, self-immolation by the um, uh, the market store holder. But Tunisia, the, the capital of Tunisia, was a powder keg. So because of environmental degradation, climate change, a lot of the people had been forced off their lands. They couldn't grow things anymore. And a lot of people were being forced into a city or cities where um, already there's unemployment, there's um, you know, corruption in the government and so forth. Um, and you've got you know, a particular system where uh, people are um, abusing their power. So I think, you know, uh, to cut a really long story short, there was a powder keg there and the self-immolation of uh, Mohamed Bouazizi was the thing that sort of tipped people over the edge and that then created this wave. But it was those social, economic and political problems which then saw, you know, people react in the way that they did but then other groups sort of come in and offer or in, try and entice people to join different groups and to behave in different ways. So we can see how not addressing these problems can lead to all sorts of issues and, and terrorism being, you know, a very critical one. Right. And then I guess on a somewhat similar note, in regards to counterterrorism strategies, what are some of the principal challenges faced by counterterrorism? So um, can I, I guess, you know, just to clarify, counterterrorism strategies or, you know, CVE, countering violent extremism strategies, are strategies and interventions aimed at addressing and or reducing uh, involvement in terrorism and violent extremism. They're largely driven by national security, intelligence and federal law enforcement agencies um, and they're designed to steer people um, away from terrorism. I'm going to use the word radicalisation and extremism, but... What, they, what agencies have long believed to be radicalisation. I think for a long time this was very much a top-down approach to dealing with the issue with little to no engagement with vulnerable or at-risk groups to best understand the specific problems, needs and dynamics of each community. And I think one of the problems for a Muslim community for a very long time, you know, post 9-11, was that there was almost this blanket approach that every single Muslim community was the same, so that every every need and every problem and every dynamic, whether it was in heavily populated Muslim communities in Sydney, was going to be the same as those in Melbourne. And that's not the case because it's made up of different individuals with different issues and different problems. So that that became a real issue. 
Um, another, I think, challenge has been that you know some counterterrorism methods, such as surveillance, have often resulted in alienating the very communities that they're meant to protect by you know the constant surveillance, you know the lack of the lack of trust and the lack of belief by those communities that that surveillance is to protect them, but instead it's there to gain intel on them, added to that distrust and that sort of, you know, actually are you protecting us or are you spying on us, you know, that kind of stuff. So I think some of these methods that have been used over the years, um, such as surveillance as I mentioned, and also the lack of adequate training of CT professionals in dealing with, with certain issues has also become uh, a big challenge for, for CT um, operations. In terms of the effectiveness of some of these operations, I think that CT operations become counterproductive when they end up causing greater grievances um, and an environment of distrust due to the methods that they're, they're actually using. This can then end up reinforcing anti-establishment sentiments and narratives by fringe or extremist elements within these communities. Um, and this may you know, um, end up leading to more people you know, subscribing to different ideologies and, and perhaps engaging in in terrorist violence or joining a, a terrorist organisation. Uh, I think looking at for many years, I think CT professionals and academics were kind of on opposite sides of the table um, as far as how to best address terrorism. But in recent years, there seems to be more of an interdisciplinary approach to dealing with terrorism. Um, and we're seeing, we're seeing, and I've seen this myself and been involved in it, sort of greater engagement and greater collaboration between you know, um, CT and non-CT professionals. And I think that's really important because we do need to have uh, an interdisciplinary approach to counterterrorism as much as we need to have an interdisciplinary approach to understanding terrorism. You can't understand terrorism through one lens. You can't just look at it through a legal lens or a political lens or a social lens or whatever. You need to be able to um, have engagement between or understanding uh, and integration of all the different types of research is being done, all the different debates, to get a more holistic understanding, which may then um, improve the way that we we deal with the problem. I think ultimately, though, one of the biggest issues with with terrorism is, I think, despite all the debates on you know what is terrorism, who is a terrorist, what makes a terrorist, how do we de-radicalize someone who um, um, who's a terrorist. How do we help them disengage from a terrorist organisation or disengage uh, themselves from a particular um, worldview or ideology? Not having a clear and universally accepted definition for what terrorism is really muddies the waters. And if we can't define what it is, we're really going to struggle with being able to address it. And that's, I think... It sounds like it's a small issue, but I think it's a fundamental issue and it's something that we really need to work more consistently in addressing. But the flip side of that is that, um, and this is not I'm trying to play to any particular view on the matter, but I think, I think often not being able, there are benefits for some groups in not being able to define what terrorism actually is. Ultimately, it's a negative, it's a pejorative term, it's subjective, it's a conceptual idea rather than a label. But I think ultimately the most effective way of, of addressing terrorism is to go beyond just focusing on the actual acts of terror and the acts of terrorism to understanding the conditions within which people may be groomed or may be um, motivated to join these groups. And again, I think for me... It's addressing those social, political and economic issues 
Um, it won't make terrorism go away, but I think it will go a long way to to uh, mitigating some of the some of the issues. Wonderful. Well, on that note, I'd like to say thank you for joining us at the ACSS podcast. Thank you, Liam.